The story so far. Edgar Maplethorpe, an emotionally complicated luggage carrier who works aboard the SS Jonathan Franzen, played by Luther Abel in dashing neo-Edwardian naval uniform, is on his way to America for the first time, where he intends to meet his betrothed Eloise McCarthy, played brilliantly by Michael Brendan Dougherty in a feather boa and miniskirt. But little do they know that beneath the icy waves of the North Atlantic lies a prototype submarine, staffed entirely by diminutive Jack Butlers, with preposterous monocles and over-the-top German accents. Meanwhile, aboard the ship, Dr. Prandig von Harfenstaff, inventor of the bookmark, has lost his favourite hip flask, a gift from the Empress of Belgium during the last major war. In his search for it, he is being aided by Dorothy Martin, a pretty young scullery maid played to great effect by Noah Rothman with the help of a second-hand prosthetic leg. To make matters worse, the captain... Charlie. Yes, Luther? What are you doing, Charlie? I'm doing my radio play. For what? My radio play. You know, the one about Edgar Maplethorpe and Dr. Prandig von Harfenstaff and... No, no, I think not. You think not? I think not. Why not? Because it's, it's very silly. Silly? It's very silly. No, none of these people exist. Well, in fairness, neither do you. You died in episode whatever it was. What does it say about you that you're visited by a ghost this close to Christmas? You may want to get on with it, Charles. Oh, all right. Welcome to episode 50 of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. Life begins at 50, they say, except for Luther, of course. Or should I say Edgar Maplethorpe, whose work carrying luggage aboard the SS Jonathan Franzen has been... You're still doing it. I am. I am. Welcome to episode 50 of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. Look, it's been tough. The Jaguars have lost three games in a row, which I'm fairly sure is a violation of the Geneva Convention. And I just thought that if I could do my radio play, it might serve as a distraction from the fact that we seem increasingly likely to have an election between Joe Biden and Donald Trump that, as far as I can tell, nobody in America, outside of a handful of political partisans, seems to want. But oh no, Luther Abel just had to come in and stop it, didn't he? I have a quick programming note before we start. If you like this podcast, please rate it on Apple Podcasts. Compliment it. Gush. Adulate. Commend. Acclaim. Write panegyrics, paeans, poems, if you feel up to it. Tell the world that the only thing keeping you from descending into hourly panic attacks and a generalized sense of existential dread is this very podcast and its wonderful guests, including, of course... The apple of my eye, 
the wind beneath my wings, the light streaming through my windows, Becky Pringle. Obviously, if you don't like this podcast, then don't leave a review. But do leave your brain to medical science so that we can work out why, despite disliking this podcast, you've managed to listen to 50 episodes. That I would be interested to know. So please send all such responses to Dr. Prandig von Harfenstaff, the Department of Podcasts, 15 Nebraska Street, Nebraska Town, Nebraska. The children will thank you for your generosity. My guest this week is Raphael Mangual, the Nick O'Neill Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a contributing editor of City Journal, and a member of the Council on Criminal Justice. Raphael, welcome to the Charles C. W. Cook podcast. Thanks so much for having me. All right, so last year you wrote a book titled... Criminal Injustice, What the Push for Decarceration and Depolicing Gets Wrong and Who It Hurts Most. Now, that, to put it mildly, is not the most fashionable position to take. It is not. Particularly at the moment. It's still not a fashionable position. What were you responding to? What is decarceration? What is depolicing? Why does this lead to injustice? Why is it wrong? Who does it hurt the most? Set the scene for me. You felt moved to write this book because what happened? Well, because I started to see an erosion in what were, to me, incredibly important gains that were made on the public safety front that really began in the mid-1990s and carried through for about a quarter century thereafter. You know, the declining crime that happened, you know, between 1993 and 2014 was, in my view, the single most important achievement in urban American history. In 2015, we saw for the first time in a long time a significant spike in homicides nationwide. That was followed by another spike in 2016. And this was at the time of the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement in the wake of the riots in Ferguson, Missouri, and uh, after the death of Michael Brown, and you know, riots in New York after the death of Eric Garner, and riots in Chicago after the death of Luquan McDonald. I started to see this pattern. And the pattern was that more and more people were coming to the view that true justice required the dismantling of the institutions that were responsible for the crime declines, the police, prosecutors, corrections departments, our prison system. It became fashionable to say that these institutions were corrupt, that police were akin to an occupying army, that the criminal justice system was overly draconian, and that it was racist, right, as, as evidenced by these viral incidents of police uses of force that didn't look very good on camera, despite in some cases being justified. And then, of course, you had the unjustified cases, as with what happened to George Floyd in 2020, which really kind of kicked off a nationwide spiral down this road toward decarceration and depolicing, where you saw city councils voting to defund their police departments in cities like Austin and Minneapolis and New York and Los Angeles. And you saw, you know, in the wake of George Floyd's death and the year that followed, actually, 
more than 140 reform bills enacted across more than 30 states, which is an enormous amount of policy movement in a very short period of time. And this was coming on the back of a decade that was really characterized by policy shifts, albeit more modest ones, that were already kind of unidirectional in that they were really lowering the transaction costs of committing crime by making arrests, prosecutions, and incarcerations less likely to occur, and also raising the transaction costs of enforcing the law by increasing the scrutiny that police departments faced by imposing new regulatory requirements on those departments and placing a premium on enforcement actions taken against police departments. And so, you know, what we saw in 2015 and 16 were, I think, precursors to what was only inevitably going to happen, which of course came down in in 2020, which was a massive spike in in serious violent crime. In fact, 2020 saw the largest increase in homicides year over year in American history. And that was really the culmination of things that inspired me to write the book. I I was tired of allowing people to continue to get away with this idea that true justice requires dismantling these institutions because what was plain to anyone who bothered to look was that upon this process of dismantling these institutions and pursuing decarceration and deep policing as public policy goods unto themselves, what happened was that crime started to go up, but not everywhere, of course. It started to go up precisely in the communities that the reformers and activists who were pushing these narratives said they they were out to help. And, and I thought that there was a dearth of forceful commentary on the other side of that debate, and I wanted to help fill that void. So here's a statistic that I think is accurate, that is astonishing, that the United States accounts for 5% of the world's population, but has 25% of the world's prisoners. Is that true? It's about true. It's changed a little bit in recent years, but, but yeah, it's roughly correct. Now, why shouldn't I be bothered by that? Why shouldn't I say that that is over-incarceration? That's overly punitive. Well, for a few reasons. One, I mean, it it doesn't control for some of the most relevant factors that might inform why that's so. And one of those relevant factors, of course, is, is serious crime, particularly gun violence, which is the type of offense that, that tends to result in lengthy prison sentences here in the United States, and it really drives up the incarceration rate. The reality is, is that the United States, being a large country, being a relatively wealthy country, unfortunately has more pockets of serious violence than do other parts of the world. And even in the parts of the world that have more serious violence, the United States is in a relatively unique position to confront, detect, and punish that violence in a way that you know some other more violent jurisdictions aren't. So Brazil, for example, has much higher violent crime rates than the United States does, and but has a lower incarceration rate. Now, the, the question is, is that a function of the fact that the United States is significantly more punitive than Brazil, or is it a function of the fact that Brazil just doesn't have the same resources that the United States has to detect and punish the kind of crime that I think they all agree they're suffering from? And I think it's very much more the latter. You know, when we're unfavorably compared to other Western European democracies, the implication is that the United States, you know, should have an incarceration rate on par with those nations, and that doing so means being less punitive 
but we're actually not particularly uh, punitive with respect to how we treat lots of criminal offenses when we're compared to other Western European democracies. I mean, for example, in the UK, your home country, Charles, the mandatory minimum sentence for illegal gun possession is five years, of which you have to serve three and a half years before you're eligible for release. Now, here in the United States, illegal gun possession is often met with sentences of probation or diversion. So, you know, that's just one example of how we're actually significantly less punitive, <laughs> at least with respect to one offense, than another Western European democracy that we're unfavorably compared to in Germany. German authorities sentence a higher share of people convicted of first-degree murder to life in prison than the United States does. It's 9% here in the U.S. and 14% in Germany. Again, you know, it's not necessarily that we're more punitive, which is what I think the statistic you referred to earlier is intended to argue. It's just that, unfortunately, we have a lot more of the kind of crime that will land you in prison if you are caught anywhere in the world. Are Americans more criminal? Kevin Williamson always implies this, that Americans, they're a rambunctious lot in a free country, freer than most other places, and they're just more likely to commit crimes. I hesitate to say that Americans are more criminal, but America does have more criminals. Uh, the reason that distinction is important is because, as in almost any country in the world, the vast majority of serious crime in the United States is driven by a very, very tiny share of the population. In most cities, you're talking about less than 1% of the population being responsible for you know, somewhere around half of the serious violence. There was a, a famous study out of Sweden that I think found 1% of that country's population was responsible for 63% of its violent crime, and that's a pattern that tends to hold. But the United States is a large country, so 1% of 330 some odd million people is a lot of people. And so, yeah, we have more criminals than lots of other countries. And more of those criminals engage in more serious violence, particularly gun violence, as compared to criminals in other countries. And that goes a long way toward explaining why our incarceration rate is so high. I mean, in the book, I do this, this analysis looking at 2018 data, and I compared just a handful of neighborhoods in, in four American cities, uh, Detroit, Chicago, St. Louis, uh, Philadelphia, and looked at the number of homicides in those neighborhoods. And you came to uh, an endpoint where those four neighborhoods, I mean, those neighborhoods in those four cities had about 10% of all the homicides seen in England, Wales, and Germany for the year 2018, despite housing less than 0.5% of the population of those countries combined. So you've got a collection of geographies that have about 470,000 plus people seeing 10% of all the homicides seen in three whole Western European countries, which gives you an idea of just how different the gun violence picture is here in the United States. And that goes a long way toward explaining why we have more people behind bars. What about drugs? How do drugs compare? I can absolutely anticipate that there's going to be a difference in guns between the United States and Western Europe, it, just because the United States has a Second Amendment, it has a very healthy culture of gun ownership, there are half a billion guns in private hands, you, you're going to have more gun crimes because there's more guns available. What about drugs, though? How do we treat that compared to Western Europe? Not very differently, and probably less punitively, at least with respect to some countries. I mean, it's often mistakenly argued and asserted that 
incarceration in the United States is driven by and large by the war on drugs. And that's that's just false. I mean, if you look at the state prison population, which accounts for about nine out of every 10 prisoners behind bars here in the United States, maybe 8.7, you're looking at about 14 to 15% of the prison population being incarcerated primarily for a drug offense. Now, that's not nothing, but it's certainly not anywhere close to a majority, whereas more than 60% of the prison population is in either for a violent felony or a weapons-related felony. So you could get rid of everyone in the United States prison system who is there primarily for a drug offense, and you would still be an outlier with respect to incarceration. That's really important to note. The other thing, though, is that you have to understand that when we... When we look at our incarceration data, particularly how prisoners are categorized, people who are in primarily for drug offenses are not necessarily there only for drug offenses, right? The way that we categorize prisoners for our data sets is based on the top charge, the sentence that has the highest ceiling. So if you are an offender who is arrested, say with an illegal firearm and a kilo of cocaine in the trunk, you might get more time for the kilo of cocaine than you would for the illegal firearm. So you can be convicted of both, but you will be categorized as a drug offender because that has the highest sentence ceiling. So our prison categorization data undersells the degree to which violent crime is really driving a lot of this. The other thing is that people who are in primarily for drug offenses tend to also have pretty extensive criminal histories. So if you look at prisoners... In state prisons, on average, they will have between 10 and 12 prior arrests and between five and six prior convictions. Now, people who are in today, primarily for drug offenses, a large subset of those individuals have violent criminal histories, which explains why they're getting time for the drug offense. And the other thing to understand, too, is like when we incarcerate, we do so in part because we want to incapacitate offenders from committing serious crimes in the future. And the reality is, is that there's a lot of overlap between drug offenders and really serious violent offenders. And that's evidenced by the fact that more than 75% of people who are released from prison for a drug offense will commit a non-drug crime at least once over the following 10 years. More than a third of them will be rearrested for a violent crime specifically. And so it's really important to understand that when we talk about drug offenders and nonviolent offenders and property offenders, that these categories aren't static. It's often the case that offenders are kind of moving between these categories. Right? There's no such thing as, as a purely violent offender or a purely nonviolent offender. You know, by and large, criminals don't specialize in, you know, it's you just won't find someone who says, you know, I just kill people, I just hurt people, I don't litter or do drugs or sell drugs or break the law in any other way. How much of the complaints about the racialized nature of the American justice system is true? This came out of the Black Lives Matter moments that you described, back to Ferguson, the summer of 2020. There is an argument you hear that police are the descendants of slave patrols, that the United States criminal justice system is used as a means by which to achieve public policy outcomes that you could not do without violating the 14th Amendment. Ibram X. Kendi talks 
as if any disparity within any system in the United States is prima facie evidence of racism. If you put all of that out on one wing as presumptively hyperbolic and then move over and over and over and over and over, how far do you have to go before you say, you know what, actually they have a point? Of course they have a point. The question is whether their point is meaningful and whether it tells us anything useful. There are a lot of objections to the way that I think people talk about race and the criminal justice system that I have. And I won't run through all of them, but uh, you know, a couple of them are important. You know, I really want to hone in on this because I, I do think that probably more than anything else, the racial disparities in our criminal justice system, the arguments about race and criminal justice are the most forceful, which is to say they are responsible for the most conversions. They're responsible for most of the momentum in the policy space that reformers have enjoyed. That is the thing that I think hangs over the broader policy debate more than anything else. And so it's important to really get it right. But one of the things that the critiques about systemic racism in the criminal justice system get wrong is that they often fail to control for a lot of race-neutral explanations the disparities in enforcement that are focused on, right? So we're told a black man in the United States is five times more likely than his white counterpart to be imprisoned that black men are 7% of the population, but something like 20 plus percent of people on the receiving end of deadly force by police. These things, you know, we're told are, again, prima facie evidence of animus built into the system, but those things don't really consider the fact that there may actually be disparities in behavior and victimization that inform these things, right? I mean, if you are a black male in the United States, your chances of being murdered are 10 times that of a white male. That's a massive disparity. That disparity is going to inform how police deploy their resources, and it should. It would be racist if the system didn't deploy resources in response to that kind of disparity, right? I mean, I'm old enough to remember where one of the critiques of policing with respect to race was that it wasn't responsive enough to black victimization, right? I mean, you have, you know, songs by old rap groups like Public Enemy, you know, 911 is a joke. And the idea was that, you know, police were indifferent to the carnage that was plaguing low-income minority communities in the late 1980s and and early 1990s. And that idea kind of still lives on today. But by and large, urban police departments have become responsive to where the crime happens. And unfortunately, the crime happens in places with overrepresentation of of low income minorities. Now, you know, in Chicago, for example, in 2019, in the book, I looked at the 10 most dangerous neighborhoods in that city. The 10 most dangerous neighborhoods in 2019, the city of Chicago, were more than 95% black and Hispanic in terms of uh, of their demographics. Their collective homicide rate was 61 per 100,000. Now, the national homicide rate that year was five per 100,000. And if you looked at the, the safest neighborhoods in the city of Chicago that year, you had a homicide rate of less than two per 100,000. So again, if policing resources are distributed disproportionately to the places where victimization rates are the highest, well, then they're going to have disproportionately more opportunities to interact with people who fit the demographic profiles that are overrepresented in those areas. So that's one example of failing to control for a race-neutral reality that will affect some of the disparities in enforcement that are talked about. Take incarceration, for example. 
We often hear that there are racial disparities in incarceration where black men receive more prison time than white men. And that's true at a top level, which is to say that if you don't control for any other factors. But once you look at the criminal histories of the offenders in question, the crime committed, the severity of the crime committed, the age of the offenders, the racial disparities in sentencing shrink to almost nothing, which I think leads us to the same conclusion that was drawn by the National Academy of Sciences, which is far from a right-wing outfit in a 2014 meta-analysis of the literature on disparities in incarceration. And I'm going to quote that analysis verbatim here for a second because I think it's important. They find, quote, racial bias and discrimination are not the primary causes of disparities in sentencing decisions or rates of imprisonment. Overall, when statistical controls are used to take account of offense characteristics, prior criminal records, and personal characteristics, black defendants are on average sentenced somewhat but not substantially more severely than whites. Now, what somewhat looks like is it looks like is really just a, a matter of weeks, which would be a very strange way um, for judges to kind of manifest their racial animus. So that I think is critique number one: is this the the, the reality that the systemic racism idea just doesn't account for the race neutral factors that explain a large portion of the disparities in enforcement? The other thing, though, and this is to me is the single most important thing that that argument misses, that the Ta-Nehisi Coates of the world miss, is that when you just focus on enforcement outcomes, you perpetuate the falsehood that these are the only outputs of the criminal justice system. And that's not the case. So what do I mean by that? Yes, when police and the criminal justice system more broadly operate, they're going to produce arrests and searches and uses of force and prosecutions and incarcerations. But every single study that's ever been done of expansions in policing, whether you're talking about hiring more officers, investing more money in departments, expanding patrols, doing hotspots programs, other proactive measures like flooding the zone, stop and frisk, etc., they consistently find that those efforts produce crime declines. There is almost no debate about whether the buildup of incarceration over the course of the 1990s and early 2000s reduced crime during those periods. There's substantial debate about the degree to which that's the case, right? You have some low-end estimates saying that the buildup of incarceration was responsible for about 25% of the crime decline over that period. Others go a little higher and say it was you know, 45%. Even if you assume it's at the low end and 25% of the homicide decline and the crime decline more broadly, that's still a major, major benefit. So when you think about the declines that are associated with policing, that are associated with other elements of the criminal justice system, namely the prosecution and incarceration of criminal actors, you have to ask how those benefits are distributed. You can't just look at the costs of the system. That would be an incomplete analysis. And when you look at the distribution of the benefits associated with the operation of the criminal justice system, what you find is that the disparities along racial lines are just as stark and just as persistent. Why? Because crime is starkly and persistently disparate in terms of who it affects along racial lines. So in New York City, for example, every single year for which we have data, a minimum of 95% of shooting victims are either black or Hispanic. In some years, it's as high as 98%, at which point it might as well be 100. So when you're talking about a series of policies and institutions within the criminal justice system that help to reduce those numbers by more than 50%, we have to understand that those benefits 
are going to be enjoyed primarily by the very same people who are victimized at higher yeah, rates. Yeah, and, and in a sense, this is a one-stop refutation of the simplicity of Ibram X. Kendi's thinking, because if you make the argument that the fact that the majority, a disproportionate number at least, of those who are charged with crimes and then incarcerated are non-white. You have to, under Kendi's way of thinking, say the system must therefore be racist. But what happens if, as you're saying, the way that you deal with that, which is more policing and this incarceration, disproportionately benefits people who are non-white? You then have a policy that is both racist and non-racist at the same time, right? That's exactly right. And you have to weigh both sides against one another, right? So if you look at the homicide decline, between 1990 and 2014, the decline in homicides that happened across this country added 0.14 years of life expectancy to the average white man's life, which is you know pretty substantial from a public health perspective. But it added a full year of life expectancy to the average black man's life, which is more than an 8x difference. So the question then becomes... Why on earth would a system that's allegedly designed and operated for the specific oppression of black and Latino men so disproportionately benefit those same groups when the system achieves its stated ends? And that's a question that the Ibram X. Kennedys of the world just don't have a good answer for. So let me ask you this. We saw a remarkable drop in crime. Did you say 1991 to 2000? 1990 to 2014, yeah. 1990 to 2014. Now, you described that as one of the greatest or the greatest achievement in urban policy in American history. It was obviously enormously important to people. We saw how big an issue crime became, both at the local level, places such as New York in the 1990s, but also at the federal level. It's remarkable now to go back and look at what our politics were like in the late 1980s and early 1990s, where crime just featured constantly. The early Clinton years were marked out by debates around crime, and there wasn't really any massive gap between the centers of the two political parties on this. In fact, the Democrats often used to accuse the Republicans of being weak None other than Joe Biden took aim at George H.W. Bush in 1992 right. and said that his crime bail is weak and that he doesn't really care about this. And he's not a real drug warrior and he doesn't want to lock people up and so on and so forth. The time period after which I moved to the United States, that's 2011 onwards, was not, I think it's fair to say, marked out by that sort of obsession with crime. I moved to New York City. New York was really, really safe. And although Michael Bloomberg was the mayor, which was a nod to the need for tough-on-crime politics, it slowly ebbed away as something that people would discuss until it felt, maybe, as if crime had been solved. Now, I don't, of course, believe that because I'm a conservative. I don't think you solve issues. But I can understand why the general public would have thought that it was less salient than it had been in 1991 or 1995. Here's my question. Stipulating that I can understand the difference in the political context, 
what was it that led to this seeming acceptance of politicians who went back to the bad old days? Because I find this a remarkable development in American politics. An amnesia or a willingness to indulge bad old ideas within a remarkably short time frame. Usually you have to relearn the lessons of history in 40 or 50 years, not 25. Where did that push come from? Where did it start? I know when it started, but, but who did it? And where did the ideas generate? There was always this kind of contingent of discontents railing against the institutions that constitute our criminal justice systems. You can see this in one of my favorite books on crime. It was originally written in 1975. It's called Thinking About Crime by James Q. Wilson. And if you read the arguments that he was responding to back then, I mean, you can change the dates and convince almost anyone in the United States today that the book was written last year. So those elements have kind of always been there, but they've never been quite very effective. And I think part of that was because if you looked at the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and 90s, early part of the 90s, you know, those were times that were characterized by real urban decay. As things got better, right, and the answer to your question is, is twofold. I think two things happened. One is that we became a victim of our own success. In cities like New York, the safety created a lot of mental distance between the present day of you know, 2017 and the battle days in the 1990s. They just made them seem so far away. With that came a sense of discomfort with continuing to maintain the kind of tough posture that the NYPD and other elements of the criminal justice system had maintained through that point. Postures that were, of course, responsible for the safety that we were all enjoying at that time. Now, couple that sense of discomfort with, you know, having a robust criminal justice enforcement apparatus at a time in which crime is near all-time lows with the explosion of social media and activists taking advantage of social media as a new avenue with which to make their case in a much more effective and visceral way. There were always cases of police brutality. In fact, there were many more cases in the 1970s and 80s and 90s than there were post-2010. But what changed around that time was that we could see them on video. We could almost feel them as if we were there. One of my earliest memories of police brutality as an issue was the Rodney King riots. Now, the reason I think that those riots kicked off and the reason that case resonated so much was that it was caught on video, which was rare for back then. Today, you have tens of millions of people, if not more, with a cell phone with a recording capability, which turned almost everyone into a journalist. And at the same time, we all have access to these social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook, which would allow us to disseminate these videos and these recordings and pieces of journalism to the entire world. And so what happened was that the activists were very, very smart and very, very astute in utilizing this to continue to pound home the idea that the criminal justice system was oppressive and racist. And it was able to back that up with a seemingly never-ending flow of videos showing 
this to be the case, right? You know, shootings of people in, in circumstances that didn't look very good on camera, beatings, things like what, what happened to George Floyd or Tamir Rice, even though both of those cases were very, very different uh, in terms of the culpability of the officers. And that created the impression that these things were happening every day. And Probably they were, but what people lose sight of is that in a country of 330 plus million people, even really, really rare occurrences happen every day. And so we lost sight of the fact, for example, that police use deadly force in less than 0.04% of all arrests that they affect because we had a video of something terrible happening every day. Because we had the Washington Post starting to keep track of police shootings and you know reporting consistently that police kill over a thousand people a year. The implication, of course, being that these are all examples of police brutality, when in fact the vast majority of those, and by vast majority, I mean nearly all of those fatal police shootings are justified and, and against other armed resisting suspects. So there was this kind of shift in the media landscape that gave activists a new tool with which to push their narrative. And then the legacy media just utterly failed in its role to be accountable to the truth and instead took on the role of activist party as well and started to perpetuate these things by giving these narratives their own imprimatur. Why did it do that? Did it do that because the media is full of progressive activists or because it is much more exciting and makes a better story? I think it's both. I think it's a combination of the whole if it bleeds, it leads idea. And it shifted from this kind of blue collar type of profession to something that was prestigious for, you know, Ivy League graduates to take part in. And they saw themselves as people on a mission to change the world. And so they needed a cause, right? I mean, who doesn't want to be part of a cause? You spend your whole academic career, you know, learning about all these great figures in history who took on issues like civil rights and human rights and anti-warp, etc. And you want to be part of something like that. And the shift in, in the sort of political makeup of the journalistic class, I think, was impacted in this way. And what you saw was that institutions of journalism became institutions of activism, and they embraced that as a role. It wasn't, you know, you're no longer telling the truth. It's democracy dies in darkness, right? You're a defender of democracy, as opposed to just a reporter of the news, which just doesn't quite do it in terms of satisfying that need for a grand mission. And so that's my theory as to why. But what but, should but we, I, yeah, what should we do about those edge cases? You said that maybe it happens every day. And then you said, but it's not endemic in the way that the press made it out to be. That not all of the 1,000 instances are the equivalent of George Floyd. Well, some people will say, okay, fine. This isn't as widespread as the press would have us believe. Perhaps 2020 was an overreaction. Perhaps the policies that have flowed from that moment have not been good for America. But it's still a problem, and I know you agree, when sure. this happens. So what do we do about that? Well, I think we do the same things that we have been doing over time. I mean, one of the things that bothers me about progressives, probably more than anything else, is that they often compare the world as it is to the world as they wish it would be, as opposed to a realistic alternative, <laughs> particularly one from the past. Now, the reality is, is that these instances are still a problem, yes, 
But that problem is much smaller than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. In 1971, which is the year that the NYPD first started keeping data on this stuff, the NYPD reported shooting more than 220 people. They killed almost 100. That is a lot of shootings in a single year for a department that was much smaller than it is today in a city that was smaller than it is today. Now, in modern day, in 2021, the NYPD fielded 6.4 million calls for service and recorded 36 weapons discharges total. They killed less than 10 people. That is a massive amount of improvement. It's an amount of improvement, by the way, that is not reflected at all in the rhetorical posture of the debate about policing. And so when we look at how we got from 1971 to modern day, what we see is that we professionalized policing. We raised the standards for becoming a cop. My father is a retired NYPD detective. He joined the department in 1982 as a high school dropout with a GED. Don't get me wrong. I think he was a good cop. He had a great clearance rate. But I do think it's better that we require college for police officers in the NYPD now. Why? A couple of reasons. One, there is data showing that college-educated officers engage in force at lower rates, even in the same kinds of situations than non-college educated officers. College educations are often proxies for more psychological stability, higher IQ, all things that will help officers kind of consume information in real time and process it more quickly and make better choices. Again, not to say that it's impossible for a non-college educated officer to be good, but we do have pretty good data telling us that this is one thing that reduces unnecessary uses of force, as well as misbehavior. So college-educated officers are much less, less likely to have complaints lodged against them, even when you control for the type of role that they're going to play, right? So you're looking at people who are actually in patrol-type roles where they're going to be in, in situations where they might make contact with people in, in force situations. So that, I think, is reason number one. Two, as it became a profession, you saw guardrails instituted, more training requirements, more intensive training requirements, more oversight built into department infrastructures, external oversights, developments in the law in the 1970s and 80s and then 60s. You saw lots of developments in in Fourth Amendment jurisprudence and Fifth Amendment jurisprudence, all of which helped get us to the place that we are today. So when people ask, what do we do about the problem? I think a lot of times they ask that question as if now is the starting point. When the reality is, is, you know, we've actually have a pretty good track record of dealing with this problem over time. And I don't see a very good reason to radically depart from what we've been doing, which has gotten us quite a long way. Are we currently in a crime wave? I guess it depends what you mean by crime wave, but I think we are certainly living through a period in which crime levels are up significantly relative to what they would otherwise be with better policies in place. If you look at what happened in 2020, people often look at that as sort of the starting point. Again, you have the single largest one-year increase in homicides in American history, which is significant. But I do think what happened in 2020, rather than being something new, was really an extension of something that started in 2014 and 15. I think things changed significantly in the wake of the Ferguson riots after the killing of Michael Brown. We started to see real policy shifts. We started to see the rise of the progressive prosecutor movement to the point where you know, prior to 2014, progressive prosecutor just wasn't even in the lexicon. And now more than 70 million Americans live in jurisdictions with progressive prosecutors. You had really starting in 2010, 
a lot of federal and state-based criminal justice reforms contributing to a steady decline in the prison population, the jail populations. You had more popularity of things like bail reforms and discovery reforms being enacted uh, throughout the country, various decriminalization efforts taking hold, Prop 47 out in California and similar efforts uh, around the country. And so I think what we're seeing now is a trend that started about 10 years ago. Is that a crime wave? Well, we know relative to recent lows, homicides are still significantly higher and other crimes have gone up pretty significantly as well. What's strange is that because of the pandemic in 2020, we've also seen a situation in which, for example, in 2020, homicides increased significantly, but we didn't see large increases in other kinds of crimes, which led people to believe that this was just a concentrated spike in gun violence. But that wasn't quite true. What has changed since 2020 is the sort of routine activities that people engage in, the behavior that we all engage in, the amount of time that we spend in public. That's really important because we're spending less time in public places, right? So if you look at New York City, for example, there was a recent survey out from the University of Toronto just last week that found that relative to 2019, foot traffic in the city's business districts are down about 33% from what it was in 2019, which means it hasn't quite recovered. If you look at MTA data, subway ridership is still less than 70% of what it was pre-pandemic. J.P. Morgan Chase published data in 2022 showing that post-pandemic consumer spending, uh, the recovery in that had been driven largely by increases in online rather than in-person spending. All of this is relevant insofar as it requires us to reevaluate how we view crime statistics. We can no longer take for granted that we can just compare, say, the number of robberies in 2023 to the number of robberies in 2018 and say something definitive about the trend in crime. Why? Because in 2023, people in many parts of this country are much less likely to spend as much time in public where they might be victimized than they were in 2018. And when you control for that, you start to see that the risk of victimization in a lot of crime categories is significantly higher than what the raw number of those crimes indicates that it might be. How long do you think this will take to fix. Is it your estimation that we can turn this around quickly? Do you think we're in for a pretty difficult time? I get the impression listening to many Americans that they feel as if this is something you can change by pressing a button. Is that right? No, no. The analogy I like to give is, um, is getting in shape. So, you know, you can work out diligently and eat healthy Uh, And it'll take you about a year, if not more, to kind of get the body you want with an enormous amount of dedication. And as we all learned during the pandemic, just a couple of months of sitting at home on the couch watching TV and eating donuts can undo that progress. It is much easier to destroy than it is to build. And public safety is no exception. For every year that goes by, it's going to take us significantly longer to get back to where we were. The policy environment has momentum. Crime has momentum. It takes time for that momentum to be reversed. There's a reason why we never see an immediate effect. There is lag, and that lag is important. So it's going to take a while. Are you hopeful? Do you think we're going to go back to this hellscape of the 
like 1970s through early 1990s? Or do you think that people will demand that this be fixed? I ask because, as I said earlier, I have been astonished by the speed and scale of the relapse, given that I have long held the view that crime is pre-political. That is to say that tolerance for it sits outside of everything else. That if crime makes people's lives too difficult, they will vote for politicians whom they believe will fix it, irrespective of where those politicians stand on anything else. And yet, I don't see it happening yet. I see many of the outward manifestations of what I know about the late 1970s through the 80s and the 90s. I see the graffiti coming back onto the subway cars in New York. I see the state of San Francisco. I see the petty crime in Chicago. I see some of these prosecutors that you mentioned. And I don't see in elections, with the possible exception of 20. 20, I don't see a widespread public pushback or punishment of those who have been the architects of this criminal resurgence. We are a long way away from that kind of backlash, which is interesting, right? Because the, the reformers would have had you believe, and you know, they said it time and again, that all it would take was a slight increase in crime for all their progress to be undone and that their gains were just very, very fragile. And of course, that's not the case. And we've we've seen that's not the case. I'll give you an example. Despite everything that's been happening, Massachusetts, lawmakers there just proposed a new bill that would raise the age of criminal responsibility to 20, meaning that everyone under the age of 20 would be considered a juvenile. There's legislation pending in the state of New York that would make it much easier for people to uh, uh, to get parole. You know, there's second look legislation proposed in New York that would allow people who've served a certain amount of time to have their sentences reexamined. I mean, there is still a ton of momentum on the reform side. And so I do think that there is a point at which people get fed up. But I think that point, and history tells us this is the case, is about as close to the rock bottom as you can get. I mean, you know, New York City's history is a really good example of this. I mean, Rudy Giuliani ran for his first mayoral election in 1989 and lost. He lost at a time in which New York was experiencing 2,000 homicides a year. And in 1993, when he won, again, 2,000 homicides a year, he won by the skin of his teeth because Staten Island voters came out in unprecedented numbers at a time in which they were considering separating from, from New York City. So I think that we are likelier to get back to the worst things have ever been than we are to see a backlash in the political realm anytime in the next two years. And it's important to note that some places are already there. There are more than 30 cities across the country that since 2020 have seen either all-time highs or come very, very close to their all-time highs with respect to homicides. Places like Cleveland and Cincinnati and Louisville and Baltimore and St. Louis and Austin, Texas and Chicago and Columbus, Ohio and Milwaukee. I mean, you know, Philadelphia, the list goes on and on and on. So in many parts of the country, things are, in fact, as bad as they've ever been or close to it. And so the fact that we haven't yet seen that backlash, I think, tells us that, you know, we really ought to buckle up and, and that we're going to be in this for the long haul, which is really what motivates me to to get up and do the kind of work that I do. I mean, the hope is, is that 
we can speed this process up through forceful argumentation and um, useful policy prescriptions, right? I mean, there's a, a criminal historian that I quote in the book, Eric Monkinen, who butcher this, so I'm, I'll, I'll just paraphrase it. Yeah, but he said basically, like, history tells us that when crime goes up, society will enact policies that will get tough on that crime. That will inevitably cause crime to go down, which will increase the level of discomfort that Americans have with maintaining that policy posture, which will then set the stage for the erosion of, of those policies, which in turn sets the stage for the next crime increase, and then around and around we go. And so my hope is that each time that the pendulum swings past the point of equilibrium, it doesn't go as far as it did the last time, and that we can get back to the center more quickly. So I don't think it's going to take us as long as it took us in the 1980s and 90s to get to a point of sanity. And hopefully we won't overcorrect in the ways that I think we did overcorrect in the early 1990s. But yeah, I do think it's going to be a while. Well, I was going to say that that's an autumnal position in which to leave this show. But I actually want to know before you go, what, what were the ways in which we overcorrected in the early 1990s? Well, I think certainly our incarceration rate was the explosion of it. Well, I think was good in a lot of ways, was also inefficient. We didn't have the same capability back then that we do now to really concentrate our scarce resources on the very, very small social networks that are driving the bulk of the crime. And so we weren't as strategic. And so I think back then, at the early stages of the incarceration buildup, we ended up with more people behind bars whose incarceration was not serving a legitimate penological end. I think that's less the case now. The other thing, too, was that with policing, again, we we relied on these kind of flooding of zones, et cetera, which, again, I think were useful and understandable positions to take back then. But now we have the technology and the know-how to be much more precise um, and use these things as a chisel rather than a sledgehammer. All right, Rafael Mangra, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. And that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you to my guest, Rafael Mangual. Curses to Luther Abel for destroying my masterpiece of a radio play before it ever got the chance to soar. Thank you to Becky Pringle. Thank you to you for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>